questions of faith. Today in the studio, Father Sam Randall and Sister Gemma. Hello, Thank guys. Thank you and good morning. Helena was covering for me while I dismantled part of the studio. It collapsed in my hands. So, yes, good morning, everybody, to Questions of Faith. I'm Father Sam Randall, Priest Director of Radio Maria England. And I'm your host, and I have the eminent Sister Gemma Simmons with me. Well, the eminent Sister Gemma Simmons says hello to everybody on the day that I keep as the Feast of St Gemma. It's actually the old feast. The new one is in Lent and I don't really think feasting in Lent is a great idea. So I have it now and I'm having a wonderful feast day being with you. Who is Sister Gemma apart from you? Who is Sister Gemma? No, okay, Saint Gemma. Saint Gemma Galgani, an Ah. Italian saint who had the stigmata, who was a very remarkable young woman, died very young in the odour of sanctity. My sisters, when I chose that name as my religious name, said it was a deeply inappropriate saint because I was never going to die in the odour of sanctity, young or old, which I thought was a bit discouraging of them, really. What does the odour of sanctuary smell like? Oh, incense, I'm sure. Yeah. But it also uh, smells to me like good red wine and really nice Armagnac brandy and various other good things. Right. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen to that. I see. Didn't she live on the Eucharist? Uh, no, I think that was one of the, There are quite a few, you know, young women who died in the odour of sanctity who had various unusual manifestations. I see. Yes. That, that covers a multitude of... Well, it does. I'm being very discreet here. OK. Well, well you'll, listeners... You know, you'll discretion have to... is my watchword. Yes, of course. You know. Listeners, you'll have to check it out. Uh, Saint Gemma. Gemma Galgani, Galgani. Lovely, lovely woman from Lucca in Italy. Uh, when did she die? Uh, 19... Oh, gosh, you, you caught me there. It's something in the region of 1903. I mean, ah. early, early. And she was canonised. saints. She was canonised very soon after her death. There were people at her canonisation who had known her. Really? Yeah. How wonderful. I mean, like Therese of Lisieux. Extraordinary and, and a number of people, you know. Uh, France has, has given birth to so many of these wonderful people. I yes. mean, really, when you think about history of France and what's come out of that, it's extraordinary. Well, me for a start. Well, you, but I was thinking yeah. about other things. Oh. Right. <coughs> so... So here we are answering your questions about the Catholic Church, social issues and other topics. If you'd like to share your questions with us, you can email us at questions at radiomarieengland.uk. You can text, call or WhatsApp us at 07502385010. That is 07502385010. So let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A prayer for wisdom. Come, Holy Spirit, divine creator, true source of light and fountain of wisdom. Pour forth your brilliance upon our intellects. Dissipate any darkness which covers us, the darkness of sin and of ignorance. Grant us a penetrating mind to understand, the lucidity to comprehend, and abundant grace. Guide our deliberations and direct our conversation. This we ask through Jesus Christ, true God and true man living and reigning with you and the Father forever and ever. Amen. So let's get to our first question. Earlier this week, 
um, Sister Gemma, on Exploring the Faith on Monday, I spoke about Oregon. Um, and a listener's written in a question response to that episode. Um, he or she asks, uh, Father Sam, you refer to Oregon as what some may call one of the church fathers. Uh, what makes someone a church father? And are there church mothers? Well, uh, what a very interesting question. So what makes a church father? Um, originally, particularly, this was a designation of what were known as the desert fathers, so the Abbas, and um, they were men who fled out as hermits to the desert um, around Syria, Egypt and Palestine in the 4th and 5th centuries. And what was most typical was that a, a young man usually would leave, abandon the world, the flesh and the devil and go off uh, into the desert, live as a hermit. And by and by, um, people came round to live around them as a, as a desert community and they would... Um, note down the sayings of these uh, desert fathers who were famous ascetics and that's where the monastic tradition arose so that they were men of wisdom um, but also of course the the designation church father uh, has also to do with the great theologians of the original church so not only people like Oregon but uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo, um, Hippolytus, Irenaeus, um, people of that nature and these were people who wrote theological treaties in the early centuries of the church now, of course, in that respect, there were very few women theologians at that time because there were very few women who had that level of education. But certainly among the in the desert tradition, there were desert mothers, the Amas. Um, these were women who fled also to the desert and started up to live as hermits and began to be the centre of hermit communities. Um, some of them had quite um, exciting histories um, Amma Theodora of Alexandria fled to the desert disguised as a man and joined a community of monks, not the first person in history who had done that. Um, and, of course, the sayings of the Desert Fathers were written by men for male monastic audiences, but more in more recent years we've developed a much stronger sense of the tradition of the wise women of the desert and therefore the sayings of the desert mothers and um, St Jerome had a community of extraordinarily holy highly educated and wise women around him um, Melania the elder, Melania the younger from whom the name Melanie comes of course, St Paula and her daughter Eustochium and in the church mothers in the sense of the doctors of the church of course we have in more recent times had uh, a number of women raised to that title people like um, not only Catherine of Siena who of course has been a doctor of the church for some time but Teresa of Avila so yes there are church mothers whose writings are remarkably engaging and wise and very interesting to read 
Thank you. Uh, do you know why Oregon isn't considered a church father? Well, there were some problems with some lifestyle decisions that he took, but also about some of his writing. Yeah. So uh, all the early, ch- very early church uh, writers loved his writings, the Cappadocians and people like that. Mm, I like his writings too. Actually. Well, I do too. So, um, and actually, we're not alone. Pope Benedict uh, um, described him as a master of faith, but the church condemned him in the sixth century. It's a shame. Justin, Some very good people have been condemned by the church, you and know. And horrifically burnt his writings. And that would have included the Hexapala, which was his wonderful... Um, he had the Hebrew scriptures and five different translations amazing. in Greek. He was an amazing writer. 2,000 books he, he produced. So thank God some have, have left. He made a huge impact on the church and its theology. Uh, first Principles was the first systematic um, attempt at theology. And it's it's all a great shame. But there are four criteria to be an early, officially an early church father. Orthodoxy, antiquity, sanctity and church approval. So he had two of them, but then fell out. Well, I, I, I would probably get a tick for orthodoxy and antiquity. Would you? Oh, certainly on the antiquity side. I'm <laughs> feeling very antique at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, okay. I'm not sure about the rest of them. So, Church hey. approval or sanctity. Okay. Yeah, well, that's a bit harder. You know? But, I mean, we need we need to draw the best from some of these. I mean, the, the, the thing that people didn't like was he believed that in the end, he well, he's reputed to have believed. I'm not, I've looked at this and I'm not absolutely sure he did that everyone in the end would be saved, including the, the fallen angels and Satan. And that was the thing that did for him. Jerome didn't like him. No, well, Jerome was a bit of a miserable old codger, wasn't he, really? It has to be said. I'm Augustine sorry. Augustine liked him. So well, there you go, there you, go you see. Big tick. Big tick by Augustine. So, you know, that's the exciting thing, dear listeners, about theology, is that you're never short of an argument. If you're the uh, argumentative no, type, theology is for you. Yes. That's so, for sure. Yeah, it's true. Um, or if you're just curious and want to explore the faith, um, Oregon is one of those exciting people. He uh, he, he was, um, yes, he wanted to get martyred. and he. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, he, he tried. Do you know the story about his mother hiding his clothes? No, I don't know the story about his yeah, mother hiding his clothes. Yeah, he was 17. His, his father had been arrested for the faith and he wanted to join his father and be uh, martyred. So his mother hid his clothes and he didn't like to go out of the house. Well, so, do you know, sensible woman. I'm glad he had some sensible women he around did. He him. Had sensible women you around. You know, really and well, truly. Yeah. And and you know, I have a very vivid memory of my extremely wise novice mistress. She was a very spiritually wise woman called Pia Buxton, and I remember as novices Pia saying to us, "Don't bother going looking for the cross. The cross will come and find you." It's true. And she also said, "The cross that you choose for yourself is not actually the cross because the cross by its very nature is something that imposed is imposed and that we don't choose for ourselves and over the years i've reflected often on how very wise those words were you know if we try and choose elaborate penances for ourselves they're nothing like as penitential as the little instinctive thing that we just can't quite get a grip on and, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's good for us the, to know. The thorn in the flesh. Yeah, St. Paul talks about. St. Paul talks about. It's good for us yeah. to know our weaknesses. Hey. If you'd like to listen to the episode in which I share Oregon's ideas of prayer and on the Our Father, you can listen through our podcast, Search Radio Mirror England, Exploring the Faith, and you can listen to that on Radio Mirror England.uk. On to our next question. 
with Jesus coming and then dying and then returning from the dead and then ascending to heaven and then sending the Holy Spirit, why does he need, why does Jesus need to come again? Just seems like the church always wants us to be ready for the next coming of a saviour. Well, that's a great question again. I mean, I'd like to take it from the that, that kind of the end of that list, just like seems like the church always wants us to be ready. And yes, it does, because I think that the emphasis on, you know, the end of the world. Uh, I remember when I was a child, there was a chap who used to walk up and down Oxford Street with sandwich boards on his back and oh, front saying, you know, the, uh, your doom is nigh. <laughs> oh, and yeah, it was. <laughs> but, you know. We're told, I mean, Jesus himself says to us, you know, be ready because you do not know the hour at which the Son of Man is coming. And I don't think he was referring so much to the end of material creation as we know it, sort of doomsday, but to, in a sense, the whole point of doomsday is it's it's the moment of choice, isn't it? It's the moment of ultimate choice. And I think those moments of ultimate choice come to us every day in little things as well as in great things, because we're we're always life faces us with. Do I choose for Jesus to be the ultimate criterion in my life or do I not? Do I choose for a life of faith, hope and love to be the ultimate principle on which I stake my life, or do I not? And sometimes those choices are not sort of, oh, I've got to sit down and think for an hour before I make this choice. We make them on the spur of the moment. But as as Shakespeare says, the readiness is all. And so Jesus himself did speak of the final judgment and of the fact that there would one day come an end to material creation as we know it. Um, and that's part of the church's teaching. It's part of our creed. But I think actually that that doomsday, that moment of final choice, is something that's in the here and now as well as in the future. We've all got to face it. I think all of us think that we're going to go on forever and death is sort of for somebody else. I remember seeing that in the army, young men. Uh-huh. They sort of believe they're immortal, and the way they carry on. But I don't I've think seen... you could. I don't think you could go into battle if you didn't believe that. No, but I, I don't mean, think you'd have the courage. Having seen that and seen some injuries and how it's affected uh, people, people yes. should really. I mean, you watch these ridiculous films where people hit each other and they just sort of get up and don't seem to care. I mean, it's not like that. The world's not like that. No, it's not. It's not. And we are much more fragile and vulnerable than people think. Um, and uh, we need to treat with each other very very gently and with a lot of kindness. And, of course, our end we need to prepare for. It's the parable of the foolish virgins, isn't it, really? Being always ready. It is. Being always ready. And being trimmed. always ready is not about um, sitting around gloomily thinking I'm about to die any second. But I suppose it's about making every minute count. It is. It's that. about saying, you know, the present, the now that I have is very precious and in a sense, every moment is a crucial moment. And living, living, just enjoy it. Absolutely. There used to be some posters on the underground of an old couple at a table. So do you remember the time we nearly went to Moscow or something like that? Because they never did. They never got there. And uh, I think life is such a gift. 
and it's so precious when you're with people who've uh, facing terminal illness then then it makes you think it certainly does because the regrets that one has yeah. then i mean saint ignatius of loyola um you know at one moment in the spiritual exercises he suggests to people that they do an imaginative exercise imagine that you've been told that today was the last day of yeah. your life what would you wish you had done with your life don't wait do it now do you know what luther said tell me planted a tree oh well that's a jolly... i'm pretty sure yeah, yeah. Um, I think Ignatius had coffins. A coffin he used to lie. Do you know I had my own coffin? No, Ignatius did not lie around in coffins. Absolutely not. I had my own coffin. I bought it on the internet. Right. Okay. I'm sure you want to tell us about that, Father Sam. I was trying to encourage people to to get ready and to buy their own coffin. They didn't think that was a bit strange of you, did they? I used to carry it around, a cardboard coffin. And I came in a big box, so I got two for the price of one. Well, that's always... I'm sure your wife was really happy to... No, it was a good thing, because I think it's... Darling, I've bought you your coffin. You can see how that's open to misinterpretation, can't you? You can, but I mean, it was an environmental campaign. I was interested in that. Anyway, should we move on? I had a colleague, actually, in my last job who had, who used a coffin as a co- coffee table. Yeah. He was a philosopher, and his son had made it for him in in woodwork. I have to say, I, I think I'd have been a bit worried, you know. I've got right. a death wish for Daddy. No. Yeah. You Get know. ready for Get it. Get ready for it. Okay. I, I personally don't have a coffin, I have to say, but I do. It's one of my little mantras. Make every minute count. Amen to that. And, uh, yeah, amen to that. That's what we've got to do. Live live for today. Absolutely. Yeah. Live, yeah. absolutely. Live life Enjoy to the full. It. The Jews, you know, in the Talmud, they have a wonderful saying. It's one of my favourite Talmudic sayings. It says... I thank you, God, I'm not a woman. No, not that one. I have to say that's one of my least favourite <laughs> Talmudic sayings. This one is about when we die and we face God's judgment... Yeah. We will be held to account for all the good things that God gave us in creation that we refused to enjoy. Ah. And so God will say to us, did you enjoy the life I gave you? And if we say, well, no, I was too busy, you know, repenting or something, I think God will say, why on earth? Yeah. Do you know, I've had the great privilege of doing lots of funerals as an Anglican vicar. Uh, one week I did ten. Good heavens. I know, but I mean, honestly, it shapes you. I'm sure it and, does. And just sharing with people in that journey. I'm sure it does. And of being at the end of people's lives. But, yeah. do you know, every time I wanted to rush home and gather up my children and my wife and say how much I love them. And well, I that is for them. so important, Father Sam. And I remember reports of nine uh, eleven. You know, when people were in those planes and they knew they were going to die, all they wanted to do was ring those they loved and tell them how much they loved them. And while that's very beautiful, I want to say, tell them every day. Tell them. Tell them. Don't wait. I mean, I like write it in lipstick on your on the on the window. I mean, your mirror. I've got a friend who did that. I Leave little messages any, around. I would if I had any lipstick, but Li- oh, I don't have lipstick either. But oh, I have a friend that who did that. Surprises me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, let's get to the next. Um, uh, actually, let's have a music break. Indeed. You've chosen this deliberately. I Why? Have. Oh, because I think it's such a. St- 
stonkingly good piece of music. It's Libera singing Dies Irae. And the Dies Irae, of course, is a song about the final judgment. Uh, one of the refrains in it is, Eudex est venturus, the judge has come. But the lyrics of this version are beautiful because it's a, it's a child's voice asking really important ultimate questions about good and evil, about the final outcome of good in the world. And it's quite... Uh, it's a very dramatic piece of music talking about the fact that the world will dissolve in ashes, but also talking about the fact that we are facing a good judge, a loving judge, who actually died himself in order to take upon himself the punishment, as it were, that according to the old theologies of our sins. So it is he who has borne our sins and carried our iniquities.
So this is Questions of Faith and I'm Sister Gemma and I'm here with Father Sam. If you would like to share your questions with us, please email questions at radiomariaengland.uk. You may also text, call or WhatsApp us at 07502385010 and this show is available as a podcast. You really want to hear it again. So please subscribe to get all the latest programmes from Radio Maria England. Our next question is from Lucia and it is our lovely Bishop Alan Hopes will be retiring and our Diocese of East Anglia is praying for it for a new bishop how does a person become the bishop is there a checklist or requirement well that's Lucia hi and I think that's a caller call so um, great to hear your question it's a very good question Um, it's not a simple thing to become a bishop because it's quite a complicated job when you think about it Uh, not only uh, obviously we tend in the parishes to see the bishop when he turns up on a uh, an important occasion like a, a confirmation or something like that, or a priestly ordination. But he has a very, very serious duty of care for his clergy. So that's one of the really important things that we have a bishop who is going to look after the priests well for their welfare, but also to ensure that everything they're doing within their parishes is Um, helpful and fruitful for the growing and the developing of the faith. So he's also got to be someone who understands the faith and who can teach the faith because as a bishop, part of his role is to be in the the teaching office of the church. Um, So clearly there would be questions about making sure this is not a bishop who has kind of weird beliefs about anything or who's gone off on a tangent doctrinally, as it were. And then, of course, he's also got to look at the management of the diocese. So it's a very, very big job. Not everybody's got the gifts. So one of the things that um, the papal nuncio will do, um, because he is kind of in charge, really, of the management of the church in a particular country, Uh, There will be questions of those whose job it is to gather information to try and find out about, to get a short list, therefore, of priests who might be um, suitable for this task. And you don't only have to look at the secular priests of the diocese. You can look outside the diocese. And, of course, you can also look at the members of the religious orders, of the male religious orders. And one of the uh, things that happens is that they ask a whole variety of people. So you get an envelope. It's all a bit kind of mysterious. And uh, you are not allowed to talk about the the process, or at least the person that you've spoken about. But they will ask people, um, lay people, uh, maybe teachers or people who've Uh, had a real involvement in catechesis or in some other element of um, the diocesan life to say, please could you give us your heartfelt and seriously thought through reasons why you think this man might be make a good bishop. So there is a sort of selection process, but it's very much consultative and it's consultative of the laity as well. And apart from that, Uh, because they would then, I think, make uh, a sifting, as it were, of these candidates. 
and then make recommendations to Rome. And finally, the decision is made in Rome, in the dicastery for, for bishops and for the clergy. So, uh, you know, reports have to be have to be made. People look at you know, is this person living a good life as a priest as far as we know? Has he ever said or written anything against the faith or done anything that um, would would not be appropriate for a bishop? But much more importantly, what are his strengths, um, both in, term, in spiritual and theological terms, but in terms of being a person who has the capacity to be a pastor, a loving and caring pastor, as we've had with Bishop Allen? And the decision comes from Rome and then gets transmitted through the um, the papal nuncio. Do you think they're looking for someone with particular gifts? I mean, in some areas, interfaith, for instance, not key in East Anglia, but it would be in Birmingham, for it instance. It absolutely would. You know, well, and whereas interfaith or... might not be so important here in East Anglia, um, ecumenism, Christian ecumenism, is. would be very important. But so would, I think, the capacity to be a good pastor in a diocese which is very widespread. Very large. Yeah, very large, but yeah. with relatively few Catholics, I mean, compared, say, to Lancashire. Mm. Or, or up in the Archdiocese of Liverpool. So there are particularities to each diocese, and that, of course, is also something that those making the decision have to take into account. And only lastly to say, every single person in the diocese is involved in this process because we're being asked, as we were this morning at Mass in my own parish church, we were reminded to pray, to pray for this. Exactly. No, it's so important. everyone's asked, yeah. Yeah, I think the church is a, it's a, a, an important phase of its life. And I know, I mean, I know from several friends of mine that they have actually been asked if they would be ready to do this. And some of them in good conscience have said no. Right. Lucia, uh, do I, you I, have a suggestion? Yeah, uh, that's a thought. <laughs> so, oh, Lucia, do you have a suggestion oh, for me? who could be bishop? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> I, I do. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm well, not sure maybe of the type of person, <laughs> Lucia. What type of person do you think would be it important? It would have someone who, uh, well, I think it would have to be someone who just knows the people, knows family life very well, uh -huh. understands family life. Um, you know, as well as someone who's who's lived, who's had a lot of experience. Can I push you a bit? Because I think this is really important, Lucia. Why do you mm -hmm. think it would be important for a bishop to understand family life? Because it's difficult. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's hard. There are so many uh, challenges that our children face at the moment, and and having an understanding um, bishop would would be really helpful um, uh-huh uh -huh. just, just someone for the people yeah and, and I'm afraid I'm going to push you again because I think this is so important <laughs> your your insight into this why why do you think it would be helpful in what way do you think it might be helpful in what way? am I really being unfair well, there <laughs> to ask you to say that uh because it would filter down I think Oh, it's hard. I think people need to to know that they they're not looked down upon. That there is, yeah. 
you know what I'm yeah. trying to say. No, I think that's... Empathy and sympathy. Empathy, sympathy <laughs> and, and understanding. Yeah, Lucia, I think you've absolutely I'm, got it in yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit nervous. No, don't worry, my dear. I, I, I just think that's such a good answer. And Love and kindness yeah. above all things. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. empathy. Yeah, I and mean, the domestic yeah. church is under threat. The family is under all sorts of strains. Mm-hmm. Social, emotional, financial, you know, the things, yeah, lots yeah. of challenges. And that, that kind of understanding, of course, is going to... Um, is going to influence two hugely crucial things. One is our understanding of the sacraments and how we administer the sacraments. But, of course, also it's going to have a huge impact on anyone's preaching and it's given that preaching is such an important part of the bishop's task and writing pastoral letters and that kind of yeah. thing, the more he understands where people are coming from and what yeah. kind of struggles they face, mm. the more important uh-huh. his pastoral role is going to be. Yeah? Yeah. Perfect. Well, Lucia, <laughs> you're you. that's perfect. So thank you <laughs> no, yeah. for bringing this up and <laughs> thank, you. Thank, thank you for so your much. insights. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Lucia. Yeah, thank you. That was that was lovely. Thank you so much. It's very helpful. So uh, about the question about sacraments that uh, Sister Gemma brought out, it's our next question. It's about, and this relates to what Lucia really, it's about family life. Yeah. So thank you, Lucia. From a first, it's from a first, the question is from a first communion candidate's father. When my son misbehaves, should I stop him from going up to receive communion? Absolutely not, dear father, because that is when he most needs to go. (laughs) I think, and that's the same for all of us, you know. Um, Pope Francis said, the Eucharist is not, and the sacraments are not a reward for good behaviour. They are medicine for the sick. There you go. I do think, though, there is a question of, you know, why is your son misbehaving in church? And maybe that needs to be because maybe he's bored. I don't blame him if he is. And if he's bored, let's look at what you can do to help him to really engage with what's going on in church so that he's not bored and he doesn't misbehave. But please don't keep him away from the sacraments. No, I I can't. I agree with all of that. Absolutely essential. Encourage um, that. It's it's a joy. Okay. uh, So we're going to take uh, a second music break. Oh, hooray.
You're listening to Questions of Faith. I'm Father Sam Randall. I'm here with Sister Gemma. If you'd like to share your questions with us, you can email us at questions at radiomariaengland.uk. You can text, call or WhatsApp us at 07502385010. And the show is available as a podcast. It's available on Spotify, Apple and other podcast services. If you were listening earlier, you'd have heard Lucia. So we would encourage you to ring in because we want your voice and uh, to ask your question and we'll do the best we can Absolutely. to answer Absolutely. And Lucia's question was full of wisdom yeah. and it was a gr- great question. It was. It's great. So thank you, Lucia, again. Our next question has been written in um, and it's this one. Dear Sister Gemma, I listen to your show every week and I'm so grateful for the insights and humour you bring to all matters theological. I get the feeling that you're a lover of animals. And the question I have will no doubt sound silly to some people. I feel that you will understand. I have a little sausage dog called Ruby Rocket. She is a good girl most of the time, but sometimes she does bad things. I recently got hold of a book called When Good Dogs Do Bad Things. The author seemed to be suggesting that animals like Ruby are inherently good and that there are good reasons why they do bad things. It's not because they're inherently evil or fallen. Perhaps their owners are to blame. This is an attractive idea to me because I worry about what will happen to Ruby after death if she goes on misbehaving. She eats poo and rolls in it, and she's quite selfish. I think I agree with Rowan Williams that hell is a matter of being alone with a selfish ego for all eternity. But Sister Gemma... Do take you take seriously the idea that dogs and cats too, perhaps, are not fallen like human beings? And if so, how does this square with their egotistic tendencies? Thank you so much for thinking about this difficult question. I feel sure that you'll have something important to say on the matter. Love and prayers, Fiona and Ruby Rocket and Colette. Well, Fiona, that is a humdinger of a question. You are quite right that I am a lover of animals. And I don't think your question is silly at all, because people like Ruby Rocket and Colette, who I assume is also in the animal world, are very, very important to our happiness and health and well-being. Um, So do I think that animals are inherently evil or fallen Absolutely not. Um, Perhaps you say their owners are to blame. Well, certainly all the uh, dog training uh, programmes like Dog Borstal that I've seen on TV do suggest that the problem lies with the owner, not with the animal. So if Ruby is eating poo and rolling in it, I can't help wondering what you've been up to that makes her copy (laughs) what you've done. But I'm not going to ask that because that, you know, takes us into really difficult territory. But um, is it selfish? Are dogs and cats selfish? Do they have egoistic tendencies? And I think the answer is no. Every creature on the earth, ourselves, human beings and animals, we have a survival instinct, don't we? So when a cat goes next through next door's cat flap and eats the next door cat's 
uh, dinner, which I've known them to do, they're actually just trying to survive. So it's something instinctive. And if it's instinctive, it's part of how they're created. Now, we as human beings, we learn to curb our instincts for social reasons, to, to be able to, to live in society in a peaceable way. But Dogs and cats don't have those kinds of mechanisms open to them. So I think we can't think of them as fallen. And also, I would like to pick up this notion that fallen, as in the fall, means being inherently evil. Human beings are not inherently evil. Human beings are inherently good. There is nothing that God made, even wasps. I have to say I have quite a lot of difficulty with working out the point of wasps. But anyway, um, I don't think they are inherently evil. They're doing the waspy thing. They're doing what they were made for. So everything in creation is good, has the potential for goodness. And I think you are going to meet... The rubiness of ruby, the dogginess of ruby in heaven, because it's part of perfection. Possibly minus the poo, though. Yeah, Uh, this is one of the joys of being a Catholic, because you can celebrate the good. If you're stuck being a um, a sort of Protestant who's a Calvinist, where everything is fallen and corrupt and there's no good anywhere, it's a bit miserable. But being a Catholic means you can celebrate the good. Absolutely. Although I must say I've had absolutely no idea why a dog would want to do that. Uh, they they do seem to like really rather pungent smells. I mean, uh, our, our own dog at home, you know, if the dog can find some really smelly mud or a dead animal or something to roll all over, they will yeah. do it. It is. And of course, but why? you know, well, as far as they're concerned, it's doggy perfume. It's only we who've I got see. a problem. Maybe the problem lies with us. Odor stink. Odor stink. Odor colon. As I think. Odor colon. I think. You know, it's we. Sh- that fungus, the bogeyman, isn't it? Who it's wears odor colon? Do you, uh, do, you, do you ever watch um, Aristocats or Hundred One Dalmatians? Those, oh, d- definitely. Do you notice some of the like they do it deliberately? The owners and their dogs look like each other. Listen, it's not only in cartoons. I used to walk to Heathrop College where I used to work. I used to walk across Hyde Park every morning off the bus and I would notice time after time people walking their dogs... They looked as if they were brother and sister. (laughs) It was just extraordinary. So, dear Fiona, we're not suggesting you look like a little sausage. (laughs) Well, perhaps you do. Ruby Rocket. Fiona, uh, I'd like a photo to see if you look like a little sausage. I'm sure you don't, Fiona. Little pointy nose, long pointy nose uh, and furry ears. My last doggy who died recently was um, it was very lovely nature, and I wouldn't mind being confused with him. He was he was very loving and wonderfully pastoral. You know, if anyone was upset, he knew. Oh yes, he'd go up to them and with his eyes and look at them, and he was just so extraordinary. When I when I was doing my PhD, we we had a group of my uh, doctoral. Uh, supervisors, students, we used to meet every once in a while. And, you know, sometimes it was quite clear that one or other of us was going through a bit of a bad time. And this gorgeous cat used to come in and instinctively go up to the student who was feeling a bit low and just allow itself to be petted. I mean, 
animals are certainly one of the best, best part of God's good creation. It's true. And our ability to, to link with animals. I do have to say, though, that they say, I think, with some truth that dogs have friends, cats have a staff. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so, yeah. Fiona, I hope that answers your question in a satisfactory way. And thank you for writing in to ask about it. Thank you very much. Um, our last question. I was watching a superhero movie and my teenage son said he felt really sorry for the villain. He said, I can't help but feel sorry for him since he's an evil person and some people can't change. I felt uncomfortable with this explanation and wanted to get advice on this question. Are people evil? We're back to that again. We're back to that again. And I just want to say to whoever wrote this in, what a gorgeous son you have. Yeah. What a lovely, lovely boy. And what a thoughtful and and reflective thing to think about. So I can't help but feel sorry for him since he's an evil person and some people can't change. Well, I would dispute that, I have to say. I've got 25 years behind me of prison ministry and I know Father Sam you've had all sorts of ministries when you were in the army perhaps with people who'd made very very bad choices and very big mistakes in their lives but we've only got to look at the death of Jesus himself you know he's been crucified as a criminal and he's stuck on the cross next to another man who is stuck on a cross unable to move, dying the most horrible death. And just before this man dies, Jesus offers him salvation. And as far as we know, it's certainly implied in the story of of the good thief that he takes it. Um, And, you know, people do, people change. I certainly witnessed the death of someone I'd known for a very, very long time who was Honestly, one of the most impossibly difficult characters I'd ever come across. She was so difficult. And in those last weeks of her death, there was the most extraordinary transformation. She became gracious and grateful and peaceful and all the meanness and the, the difficult character. It just kind of melted away. So I would want to say that God never gives up on us right till the last solitary second. God never gives up on us. And I think I might have mentioned it on the programme before, but above the doors of many medieval cathedrals and churches, there is a scene of judgment Mm. and the wonderful, beautiful, beautiful chapel of La Sainte-Chapelle in Paris. It's a beautiful chapel that was built to house what they thought was the relic of the crown of thorns. And as you go in, there's a huge big judgment scene and you've got Jesus sitting very solemnly in judgment and there is um, St. Michael is standing next to him with a pair of old-fashioned scales And the souls are being weighed in the scales. They're being judged, basically. And the idea was that if your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds, that you would go down on the good side and then you'd go to heaven. And you see all these people lining up to be weighed and they're going up to heaven. And if your bad deeds outdid your good deeds, you went down on Satan's side. And there's the picture of the devil on the other side waiting to grab people and take them down to hell. 
And I regret to say that a lot of the people pictured as going down into hell uh, in that particular doorway are clergy, bishops, cardinals, all sorts. Anyway, off they go. What in this particular doorway, what Satan can't see oh. is that Michael has got his finger on the scales on his Beautiful. side and he's pressing it down. <laughs> so Michael's cheating, basically, to get as many people into heaven as he possibly can. I think that was a lovely illustration in the Middle Ages of God's desire for us. It's biblical. Absolutely. None so should perish. Are people and all should evil? Be saved. No, nothing that God made. People make evil choices, people do evil deeds, and some of them do truly, truly terrible things. But salvation is truly open to all of us, even the supervillains in superhero movies. There's a possibility at least. But of course, it's our choice. So we're back again to what do we choose? And in that respect, Judgment Day is every day. The Lord didn't come for the righteous. True. Yeah, but for sinners. Just as well, because otherwise I'd be left out of the picture. They, well, all of us would be, Sister Gemma. Yeah. Hey-ho. So it's good to know about our own frailties and, and sinfulness. It's true. Because we know also that we are loved. We are. And welcomed. We are. We are. Thank you, Sister Gemma, for being with me again here for Questions of Faith. It's been my pleasure. And I do encourage all our listeners to send Radio Maria England questions for our weekly show, Questions of Faith. If you have a question that you would like to ask, please email those questions to questions at radiomariaengland.uk. You can also text Call or WhatsApp us at 07502-385010. If you missed any of this broadcast, we do rebroadcast Questions of Faith on Sundays at 4pm in the afternoon. It's Mondays in the evening at 9 and Thursday in the early hours at 2. Next week, join us again live on Friday at 11am. But for now, Sister Gemma, would you like to lead us out in prayer? I would, and I do so with... The prayer of the holy angels, just to ring the changes a bit this week. Visit, we beseech you, O Lord, this house and family. Drive far away from it all the snares of the enemy. Let your holy angels dwell herein, who may keep us in peace. And may your blessing be always upon us, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.